Morning Freedom Church and welcome again to our lessons in King David. Uh, I hope you're enjoying this series. I think we've got maybe four or five of these left after this week. Um, we've covered a lot of his life. I know Chris caught us up last week after this long break we've had over the Christmas uh, just to look at what we what's happened so far in David's life. And he was looking at 2 Samuel chapter 9, uh, this encounter with Mephibosheth. And um, I am looking, I get the privilege of looking at chapters 11 and 12. It's a, it's a big section of scripture here. Um, and this story that we're looking at today is, I think, outside of the David and Goliath story, I think it's the best well-known story that we have of David. There are many songs sung about this encounter that he has with Bathsheba. Um, I'm not going to read out the two chapters because it's way too long. So I'm going to paraphrase the story of what's happened. Uh, for many of you, it'll be familiar. For others, uh, I hope you get the gist of what's happening in David's life right here. Just to say, up to this point, the kingdom has been expanding. It's been growing. It's, it really is at the top. And, and what happens in this encounter seems to be the diminishing of the kingdom of Israel as a result of what happens here. So it's really quite a significant story in the whole history of Israel and the Old Testament. So chapter 11, we're introduced with the fact that all of David's men, uh, his armies, are out fighting against the Ammonites in a battle. And um, the unusual thing we find out is that David is not with them. He's decided to stay at home in the palace, which is unusual. And he's, one night he, is either, he either can't sleep or he's bored and he gets up in the middle of the night and he decides to go for a stroll along the palace roof as you do. And he gets to survey this wonderful city that he's the king of. And as the, as the palace, it probably would have been the, the highest point in the city. So he'd have been looking down on all these houses and he's looking away and he sees a beautiful woman bathing on her roof and she's naked. And he is caught by this sight. He is, um, he's absolutely caught by it. And he's so intrigued that he sends his servant off to find out who this beautiful woman is. And the servant reports back that this lady is called Bathsheba. She's the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who was actually uh, out at battle at this current time. And he then is, he still can't get her out of his head. So he sends his servant to go and ask her to come to the palace. Now, when the king invites you for Bathsheba, there was not an option to say no, just to say that. Uh, but David's plan is he is so attracted to this woman. He desires her. He wants to sleep with her. And she doesn't have a choice in this, really, to be honest. Um, so he has this encounter with her. He sleeps with her. And then later on, she contacts King David to say that she is now pregnant to his child. So he realizes there's a massive consequence that's happened. So he devises a plan. He calls Uriah back from the battle to feed back on how, how the battle's going for Israel. Now, this wasn't Uriah's job. There would have been people whose job this was. Uh, so Uriah must have been thinking this is a little bit odd, but he feeds back to David on how the battle's going. And um, David essentially says to him, thanks Uriah, listen, go home and wash your feet which really is a way of saying to him, go home, relax, enjoy your wife and sleep with her. Go and relax before you end up going back onto the battle's lines. 
So the next day, David gets up and he's informed by his servant that Uriah did not go home to wash his feet. He actually slept on the palace floor. So David brings Uriah back in. And he questions him. And he says, Uriah, why did you not go home and enjoy your wife? And Uriah responds by saying he couldn't actually go home to wash his feet while his fellow soldiers are in battle away from their own homes. So David decides to have another crack at it. So he invites Uriah back that evening to come and dine with him. And what he does is he plies him with, with wine and alcohol, hoping that this will loosen up his senses and he gets him drunk. We're told he gets Uriah drunk and he says, essentially says to Uriah, go back home and wash your feet while you're drunk. But even a drunk Uriah has enough honor to choose not to go back to his own home to wash his feet. So David realizes this isn't gonna work. So he has to find another way to deal with this problem. So he actually sends a note with Uriah to go back to the front line and to give it to Joab. And Joab is leading the Israelite attack at this point. So Joab opens this note that has come back with Uriah and David is asking Joab to send Uriah onto the front line of the attack. And he tells him to specifically withdraw from him so that he is clearly killed. So Job is a man under authority. He does what David asks and Uriah unsurprisingly is killed. And alongside Uriah, lots of good men, Israelite men, are killed in this incident. Bathsheba obviously mourns for her husband when she finds out that he's dead, but David takes her as his wife to cover his tracks. We're actually told at the end of chapter 11 that the Lord was displeased at what David had done. And in chapter 12, we get a visit from Nathan, who is a prophet, and um, he reveals God's displeasure at what he has done. And David finds out that there are going to be many consequences uh, to what has happened in this encounter. Um, we're going to look at some of these consequences a little bit later on, but I want to just look at three things that we can take from these two chapters, uh, three lessons that I think are really important and really applicable for us in our lives. And the first is this. Uh, I think it's important to realize that no fall is sudden. Um, I think sometimes when we're looking at Old Testament scripture, it can feel a little bit uh, hard to relate to. But this area here of adultery is something that is rife in our society, in our culture. Uh, in celebrity, in Hollywood. We see it everywhere, all the time. People are buying their gossip magazines because they want to know who's cheated on who. We've seen it with Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. We saw it with Hugh Grant and Elizabeth Hurley. But this isn't something that's just kept within Hollywood. Actually, even within the Christian world, we see this issue of sin and specifically adultery um, happening all the time. In fact, during this lockdown season, um, we've seen celebrity pastors like Carl Lentz and Bill Hybels come under uh, accusation for the very same sin. And I want to say, do you know what? It is shocking. It rocks and it damages people's lives. It damages churches. Um, but I don't think that great falls like these are ever suddenly. And I think that's the problem. We look at David, this king who was magnificent, and we think, how did this happen? What suddenly happened in his life? Do you know, we went for a walk 
um, as a family uh, just after Christmas and we went to Sefton Park and rather than parking in the usual spaces attached to the park, we decided to park a little further away and extend our walk. And as we walked down this corridor between the university halls and uh, Liverpool College, we came across this huge tree that had fallen over and totally destroyed these metal railings. And this tree was precariously lying across this corridor that we had to walk through. And um, as we approached it, we could see the sheer size of this tree. And I remember turning around and saying to Tor, have we had really strong winds over Christmas? I can't, I can't remember there being such strong winds that this tree would, would fall as a result of it. And as we climbed underneath this tree to get through the corridor, we probably shouldn't have been, we probably should have gone around. We actually saw inside the tree. And as we looked into this tree, we could see that it was totally rotten inside. Um, it looked, from the outside, it was totally normal, but inside this tree, it was a total mess. In fact, it was dead, it was dying. And you know, looking at the inside, you could see it wouldn't have taken much wind to have blown over this tree. And I think uh, very much as we look at David's life, we look at his record, we remark, how did such a, a godly wise king fall so suddenly? Uh, it, it definitely feels like a suddenly. Um, he was so impressive. His achievements were vast, weren't they? Um, his character seems to be impeccable every time that we look at it. But I think if we look closely at David, we actually see that there were signs in his life where he wasn't always following God's heart for things. And um, actually, if we look closely, we see that this precise sin, uh, it was sort of writing on the cards. Why do I say that? What am I talking about in David's life? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, um, there is a guide for the kings of the time. And God had given these kings these instructions in Deuteronomy 17. And this, this actual guide was to be on their person at all times, almost like on their heart. It was supposed to be in their robes. And it was a decree essentially advising them how to stay in right relationship with God. They shouldn't amass great armies or great wealth and they shouldn't have many wives. Uh, Deuteronomy 17 says he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. Now, I don't know what this definition of many is, but just looking at David's life and trying to see uh, how he managed this and what happened in his life, you know, by the time uh, David was crowned king of Judah, he had three wives. So that's okay. Was that many? No, it's three wives. By the time he was king over all Israel, he had another four. And once he captured Jerusalem, he married several more. In addition to that, he took 10 concubines. So listen, we know this is a small amount when we compare it to David's son, Solomon, later on, who had 700 wives and 300 concubines. But I think from David's life here and these numbers, we can see there's a chink in this man's armor right here. I think actually he grew complacent to the danger uh, because his sin appeared to go unpunished for many years. Uh, actually, he'd not learned to restrain his desire for women because he was used to just taking whatever he wanted. So that's the first thing I mean when we look at his life and we re recognize there are areas um, that meant this isn't such a surprise. Secondly, you know, kings 
they were normally meant to be the one who led their men into battle. And it was done in the springtime as this allowed just a few seasons to manage to tra to the travel and the time that it took to, to conquer somewhere. But we find in this story that David has neglected what is normally a king's duty. And actually, if we, re if we go back, we realize he should have taken this place the year before and he didn't. And so he doesn't decide to go with his army this year. And you know, his close band of brothers who actually may have kept him to account are all off on the battlefield, aren't they? And King David, he's, he's idle, he's bored. So when tem temptation comes knocking, well, actually he decides he wants to entertain it. He doesn't run from it, he dwells on this temptation. He not only dwells on it, but he acts on it by inviting Bathsheba around. And he then goes on to abuse his authority by demanding that she sleep with him. And I think as we look at this chapter, there's a stark warning for all of us here. I wanna say that none of us are above temptation. And I think it's so easy to become complacent when it comes to sin. But you know, God, he wants to protect our thoughts, our hearts and our actions through the relationship that we have with him. And I wanna say that rot, this rot that happened in the tree can happen in our lives. And it happens when we start chasing things, I believe, other than him. For David, it was a very physical desire that he was tripped up by. And it might be for you the same, that your physical desire, the desires you have are ruling your actions. Maybe for you, porn has become a problem. And, or maybe it's a relationship at work that, or the school gate that is actually unhealthy. Maybe it's a TV program or a book that is unhealthy. And maybe you're trying to justify that actually it's, it's okay, it's on the border, but there's nothing too damaging about it. Do you know, I, I don't think David went up onto his roof looking for a naked woman. But when she appeared, he entertained his desire for her. I don't know what your temptations are. For you, it might be that money is ruling your actions. Maybe you found yourself compromising on your tax return or, or using inappropriate ways to get that pay increase or that job role that you want. It may be that popularity or reputation is ruling your actions. So maybe your social media use is filled with images that portray the life you want people to think you have rather than being able to be real about how life actually is feeling for you right now. Do you know whatever it is for you in your life, I wanna say this, we need to get radical with sin and to stop the rot from within. My advice honestly is firstly to draw close to God and allow the power and the conviction of the Holy Spirit to change us. Secondly, I think what's really helpful is to build relationships where we can be real. Do you know our huddles that we started in Freedom Church hopefully can be a place where we can talk about the things that are going in our lives, maybe that are hard to talk about. Hopefully it'll be a place where we can challenge and encourage one another to live holy and pleasing lives to God. 
So that's the first thing. The second thing I want to look at is the power of hidden sin. Do you know our kids love uh, all the Christmas films that come out? Uh, we end up uh, sitting down and watching several of them. And one of the things, one of the ones they love is the nativity film. And this is all about a school performing a nativity play. Uh, and in the film, there is an intense rivalry between the school concerned and this local private school. And Paul is the teacher who oversees things. And he decides to tell a little lie to Gordon, who was the teacher from the private school, that their play is so good that this year, Hollywood wants to come and make it into a film. And the classroom assistant overhears this and he starts telling everybody. And soon this lie that has been told starts to spiral out of control. And the local press find out. And then the national press find out. And Paul has to continue this facade by again lying. And he tells them that he's traveling over to LA, to Hollywood, to discuss things with the producers. When in fact, he's traveling off to go and visit his ex-girlfriend who he finds out really is just an administrator amongst a media firm. She tries to persuade him, uh, persuade her to, to, to get hold of a producer to come over and do something with this uh, to no avail. On his return, he still can't come clean uh, about what's actually happening because this thing spiraled to such a big thing. And um, it obviously hits the national press. And then on his return, the local mayor of the area decides this is such a great thing for the city that he lets them use the local cathedral, the city cathedral as the venue in the city to host the production because Hollywood is coming. Now, this is just a funny, silly little story, obviously, where a lie happens and it spirals out of control. Um, but actually, this is so real for so many people's lives. It's real here for David's life. David's deception led to more deception, which led to more until eventually he murders a faithful warrior of his own army. And this is such a common theme, not, not murdering people when it comes to sin. But sin, it tends to trap us. It holds power over us. And as I thought about this story, it reminded me of Joshua and a story that he's in. As they saw amazing victory at Jericho, um, they go off and discover amazing defeat at Ai. And the reason being is when they'd seen this victory over Jericho, God told his people not to take any of the plunder, but to leave it. Uh, but what happens is you have a man there called Achan who decides to go against what God has said. He decides to sin. Actually, that's what that's called. It's missing the mark. It's going against what God's heart is for us. And so he takes some of this plunder and he hides it underneath his tent. And Joshua starts crying out to the Lord after this battle at Ai because God had told them to go into battle. And yet many good men died in this battle. And Joshua cannot understand, where were you, God? He understands that the God uh, of Israel is over all things. He's almighty. And so he is absolutely gobsmacked when they lose this battle. And God then lets Joshua know that there is sin in the camp. And for Achan, who had taken the plunder and he'd hidden it under his tents, he thought he could hide this sin. He thought he could hide it from everybody in the army, which maybe he did. 
but he couldn't hide it from God. God sees it all. And you know, Achan thought it would be harmless. And yet the consequence of Achan's sin here was vast. Many died in that battle because of Achan's deception. And you know, the funny thing I think about sin is that although it might be satisfying at the time, it does not last, does it? Achan, here he is with this plunder. He can't take the goods from, out, from underneath his tent and go, hey guys, check this out. How cool is this? He can't brag about it because he has to hide it. He couldn't enjoy it. He has to hide it. David, similarly, in this story, he has to conceal his sin. But I want to say this, when it's hidden, it holds power over us because we have to keep hiding it in fear of being exposed. We have to try and cover our tracks, which is what David was exactly trying to do. But the truth is it's not hidden from God. We go right back and we see this happen at the beginning of the time with Adam and Eve in the garden. They sinned, they went against what God had asked them to do. And they were shamed by their sin. And do you know, they were so shamed that they, their reaction to sin is like lots of people's reaction to sin. They were shamed and they tried to hide from God. And actually they, they tried to hide their nakedness from each other. But I wanna say God is gracious and he calls for them and they respond eventually and he, he doesn't shame them. What God actually does in this situation is he covers their nakedness and shame with a sacrifice. God actually kills an animal and uses the animal skins to cover their shame and their nakedness. But I wanna say we now live in an era where there, is, there has been a far greater sacrifice that has taken place. Jesus's death on the cross has fully dealt with the sin in our lives. He has actually removed our sin as far as the East is from the West. He has provided for us robes of righteousness. So we no longer have to hide our sin. There is no chance, I wanna say this, there's no chance of being rejected by God. He deals with our sin lovingly. I wanna say it doesn't mean we can just deny it or ignore it. Because although we have a God who is slow to anger and rich in love, he also has a habit of exposing sin when needed. Now I want, this is a really important point. The power of the cross, the power of the forgiveness that we have received, the power of the love of God that took him to the cross is far, far greater than the power of sin in our lives. So I want to encourage you, don't bow to the lie that you must cover your tracks, that you must hide your mistakes at all costs. I want to encourage you to confess it to the one who has already dealt with your sin. Finally then, I want to say that David was a man after God's own heart. This phrase is used often of David. It's probably what we know about him. He was a man after God's own heart. What does that mean? Why was he a man after God's heart and Saul wasn't? Do you know, I love the honesty of the Bible. It doesn't try to hide the mistakes of people. And David 
has gone to great lengths to hide his actions, to cover his deceit. But God sends Nathan the prophet to speak on his behalf to David to let him know what he has done has displeased him. And he uses a parable to trick David into condemning his own actions. And Nathan is clear that what David has done is not acceptable in any way. It displeases God greatly. Now, I don't know how you respond to rebuke, but my natural tendency, and I think for many of us, is to justify, try and justify what we've done in some way. We want to explain why it happened, you know, how these extenuating circumstances somehow in my situation. And I imagine for David, he would have been tempted to have done just that. It would have been tempting for him to uh, turn and appeal to his own track records. Here he was, a young boy who from a young age worshipped Yahweh. He risked his life for the nation of Israel in killing Goliath. He honoured God in his life and, and even a ruthless king for many years after that. He's now taken Jerusalem. He's brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. He's united the tribes of Israel. This nation is currently in its glory days. It was a nation that was truly worshipping Yahweh. Do you know, King David has achieved more during his 13 years reigning in Jerusalem than 14 judges and King Saul had achieved together in 350 years. What an achievement. But you know, David thankfully didn't respond by trying to justify or raise his achievements as if it might merit forgiveness from God. You know, David was a lover of scripture. In fact, he was a writer, wasn't he, of lots of scripture. And he knew from Deuteronomy, he knew from the law, Deuteronomy 22, that the punishment for adultery is death. And David responds to this rebuke with repentance. He recognizes that what he has done has displeased God. And he confesses that he has sinned against the Lord. He understands the absolute gravity of his sin. And you know, Nathan doesn't mince his words in this chapter, please do read it. He goes further by explaining to David that actually his sin has the potential to give ammunition to God's enemies and to undermine God's very name amongst the nations. David doesn't argue. He throws himself on God's mercy. He knows that he deserves death. And I wanna, th I wanna say, I think his attitude here is really what makes him a man after God's own heart. He wrote quite a lot of the Psalms as we know and he wrote Psalm 51 in response to this exact incident. And it starts like this. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Do you know, David knew that he could fall on the mercy and the grace of God that he served. He knew that he worshiped a compassionate God, a God who could transform him, a God who could wash him clean, a God who could change his heart. He knew that his God was loving and compassionate. 
And you know, David's sin has been exposed. It's been laid bare here. But his overriding concern is not about maybe what the, what the servants were whispering about in the palace with this encounter. It wasn't what do people think? What are, the, what are they going to say? But his overriding concern at this point was repentance to Yahweh. And you know, throughout this encounter, he goes on from this point after being exposed to show in great humility as he, as he prays and he fasts for the next week in sackcloth. He goes on praising God and trusting God's wisdom in this situation in the midst of sorrow over the death of his child. And he goes on in this story to show his passion and his obedience to God in naming his next child Solomon, just as God had requested. Now, Psalm 51 contains loads of amazing insights and wisdom that are going to take us a long way in leading well. And uh, I want to read for you just a little bit more out of it. It's the very end, coming towards the end, chapter six, uh, verse 16. He says this, For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a, bro are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Humility and contrition of heart is what separated David from King Saul. Do you know we're going to see many more mistakes in David's life? But his love for God and his heart and desire to honour God in his life are examples that we should also want to follow. Romans 6 reminds us of the truth that what God has done for us and who we are. It reminds us of our identity now. And it says we are no longer slaves to sin. In fact, this sin has no power or mastery over us, which is absolute truth. But I don't know for you, the reality is that sin is something all of us will continue to wrestle with, even King David's. But I think these chapters, as I conclude, teach us not to mess around with sin. They teach us to keep watch over our very lives and to live in the power of the gospel. That God has forgiven us and he's washed us totally clean. And I want to say, as we examine our lives this morning, there are likely to be areas where the Holy Spirit who dwells in us starts to convict us on. And I want to encourage you this morning, as he does, please do not hide from him. Don't try and justify what's going on in your life if he starts to convict you of things. Don't ignore it. Don't push it to the side and decide you're going to deal with it at another point. I want to encourage you to act on it now. Act firstly by coming to God, asking for his forgiveness and his help to live differently. And I want to encourage you to have the courage to expose those areas that are hidden in our lives, maybe to our spouses or to a friend, because God has and will forgive you.
He has and will give you the strength to say no to sin. And he has and will use you to see his kingdom come. I hope this blesses you. Have a great week.